2: It probably won't be news to you that Britain's in the grip of a housing crisis and virtually everyone is touched by it. House prices are unaffordable for most people. Even if you're lucky enough to have bought a place to live when interest rates were low, you might be feeling the pain now. If you've got kids who've left home, you'd have noticed them struggling to pay the rent. For those on lower incomes, Britain used to have a lot of social housing, either provided by councils or housing associations, but much of that's been sold off and hasn't been replaced. The safety net seems to have gone from underneath us. Most of us might never need social housing, but when one part of the system, especially the bit that ought to look after the most vulnerable in society, is broken, it affects all of us. A home is at the heart of a community, and without secure homes, communities start to unravel. People get pushed from a bedsit, to a flat chair to a sofa, and even to the streets. Families are forced into squalid housing that's bad for their health and their children's schooling, shaping their outcomes for the rest of their lives.
0: There was a particular family that, I, that was coming to the church and they were having trouble with their house and I was invited into their house and I was really shocked by the conditions in which they were living. There was quite literally water running down the walls.
2: I'm Jeevan Varsagar from Tortoise, And this is Making Sense of Social Housing. Episode 1. How serious is the crisis? And how did we get into this mess? It used to be the case that social housing provided by the council or by a housing association gave millions of people secure places to live places where the rent was set at a reasonable level that meant they weren't just scraping by and a place that was a home forever. There's one really arresting fact that highlights how bad things have got. If you're on a low income and looking for a home that you can really afford, you might be waiting a very long time. And I'm not just talking about months. Bronwyn Rapley is chief executive of Onward Homes, a housing association in the northwest.
3: I think if you look at the waiting lists, which now run into millions across the country. And if you look, for example, at the demand for our homes, so I was talking to colleagues the other day for one of our properties, and we'd had 800 bids for that particular property. And what that gives you, I think, perhaps is some of the scale of the number of people who need homes. And
2: how long are people waiting for?
3: Oh, years. Years and years. In some of our most popular places, you'll be waiting eight, maybe 10 years.
2: That's incredible.
3: Absolutely. And, and if you don't have some of these additional needs and requirements, then you know, the chances, to be honest, of you getting social housing are pretty limited.
2: And how have we got here?
3: Well, I would say the fundamental issue is we don't have enough homes. We don't have enough homes in social housing. We don't have enough homes to rent. We don't have enough homes that people can buy. And so the competition for homes is really significant.
2: There are now more than 100,000 households in temporary accommodation. That includes more than 64,000 households with children. That phrase, temporary accommodation, doesn't really tell you the full story, of course. Commonly, it means whole families in single rooms in dingy hotels. The levels of temporary accommodation and the time people have to wait are both particularly bad in
4: London. The waiting list in Lambeth, where we are today, is about 30,000 people waiting and, and about 20 years, which is pretty stark.
2: Andy Hume is chief executive of Hyde Group, a housing association in London and the southeast of England.
4: It's a generation of children that will yeah. never get that certainty of homes. Has
2: that got worse, Andy?
4: It's significantly worse. The funding to social housing over the last 10 years has been about a 60% reduction, making it harder for charities like ourselves to provide homes, to build. Just explain what you mean by the funding. Do you mean the funding to build homes? or The the, The funding also to to support the customers living in them. As a charity, we are supported by the government and we receive grant funding. They help to set rent. There's, There's what's called a rent settlement agreement, which the government have missed a number of years out of the last 10 years. That puts more financial pressure on us. That means we can provide fewer services. So things like our community centres become increasingly difficult to run. Things like our outreach, our charitable foundation becomes increasingly difficult to run. There needs to be a rethink, quite frankly, in the UK about how it works. It's about how can local authorities and housing charities like Hyde work together to improve the quality of our existing homes. And that's really, really important to make sure that people are safe, that they are warm, that they are secure in those homes but also that we can build new homes and appropriate homes for the changing families in the UK. So people live very differently now than they did 30, 40, 50 years ago. Have we got the right homes and the right places for those families? And that's the hard bit. There's ultimately not enough money. Um, I don't think, candidly, that there's enough support from government. And there's no certainty of the funding.
2: There's another thing to consider too. Over the last 40 years, the population of this country has grown significantly and many more of us are now living alone, so we need more places to live. We're not building enough houses, and crucially, we aren't building enough houses that people can afford. In 1979, local authorities and housing associations provided 5.5 million homes. By 2021, that number had dropped to just over 4 million. The language around housing can get a bit fuzzy, so it's really worth paying close attention to the words here when you hear a government minister talking about building affordable homes. What does he really mean? The government defines two kinds of rent below market levels. One of them is social rent, which is often set at about 50% of the market rate. The other is something called affordable rent, which is set at 80% of the local market rate. That isn't much of a discount. It's a bit Orwellian, really. Affordable rent that no one can really afford. So if you're on a low income, it's only social rent that you can afford. Increasingly, people on lower incomes who would have had social housing in the past are being pushed into the private sector. Sometimes that's fine, but often it's very poor quality accommodation. We're, Tell us where we're going. We're Tell us going. where We go even because I've not been to Liverpool okay. in 20 years, if you're not, so, so I don't know where I am. Yeah. we
0: are just heading off from the middle of town by St John's Gardens, and we're just going down in towards the north end of the city. So yep. what the road we're going?
2: Ellen Loudon go is a Church of England clergywoman. She's director of social justice for the Diocese of Liverpool. Her job involves supporting churches with running food banks, working with the elderly and other kinds of social action. She grew up in Wales and then in the southeast of England, but came to Liverpool for her degree in drama. Like a lot of people who come to the city for university, she's stayed there all her adult life. When you talk to her, you get a sense of her bond with the city, how much she's made it her home, and how strongly she feels about how the housing crisis is affecting people's lives here
0: the state of the kitchen meant that it was not the kind of place that you would want to cook in. And the the door opened straight out onto, so there wasn't even a step. So as, the, as they opened up into the yard and the state of the yard and, and then the alley at the back, there was an, a terrible infestation of fleas and lice. And these were not unclean, dirty people. This was the state of the housing and the water running down, not just the walls, but the windows. They had children and they had an uh, an older person living there as well. And I was really, uh, what I was shocked about was their reticence to it and their acceptance that actually this was okay. And that even that they couldn't really get in touch with the person who owned the house and that the people that were letting it to them were not people that they could have a direct relationship with. So the conversation that we were having was just about how to cle- essentially clean the house. But they, she, the, the family were absolutely adamant that they that there was no point in moving because they wouldn't find anything better.
2: Housing that's damp, cold, infested, mouldy or noisy has a big impact on physical and mental health. Children living in overcrowded conditions do less well at school and are more likely to have behavioural problems. And it's often the most vulnerable people who can end up in these situations. So it was the morning of my 49th birthday.
1: I woke up and I went to help a friend who was fit in the kitchen just to carry
2: boxes and I couldn't read none of the labels when he was asking me. I met Ray Clements in Liverpool. He's now 50 and has labour's disease. It's an inherited condition that leads to loss of vision. He needs a guide dog but can't have one while he's living in temporary accommodation, in a hotel that is as the dog has to be trained around the property as well as the person it's helping. It's really broken and, you know, the the impact that it has on your life when they just sit you in a hotel. Ray's done a variety of jobs. He's worked in a pub and as a taxi driver, and he qualified as a forklift truck driver. Two things strike you when you meet Ray for the first time. He's an eloquent, confident speaker and is remarkably upbeat given how tough life has been for him. For the last six years, he hasn't had a stable, comfortable place to live. For a while, he was sharing a house with four other men.
1: The situation with five males in the, the house was, it could be unbearable, to be honest. Five males, not everybody cleans up. Not everybody looks after the house. I like to keep on top of stuff for me. I like to be clean. I like to cook fresh meals and stuff. So it was coming untenable. I think HMOs are really sh- should be only ever used as a short term. Solution me. So how long were you in that situation? Uh, probably about two years. And when I look back now,
2: my drinking deteriorated and my mental health deteriorated rapidly without me being able to see it. Eventually, Ray went to stay with a friend, but then, almost overnight, lost his sight and it became hard to share a house.
1: I was struggling to cure, I was struggling to to just do basic stuff. And if he left, he'd left it, leave his bike house, I'd had a couple of trips, a couple of falls... I just couldn't stay there. I really just couldn't stay there any longer. Did, did you try looking for social housing at that time? So, yeah, so we tried to... We, I got onto Property Pool, which took loads of rigmarole because they were asking for forms, and I was like, we, we sent them over, and then they were asking for me
2: registration of blind, which hadn't come through from the council yet. Property Pool is the website where affordable housing is listed for rent in the Liverpool area. His sister-in-law helped him look. It was just... It was like he was banging his head against the wall.
1: People don't understand that because my sight had gone. I'm having to go around to somebody else's property and sit down with them and say, will you do this for me? And then when they're getting on the phone, it was never good enough. And then I'd be told I'd be contacted back. Nobody would contact me back.
2: So despite the onset of the disability, you still couldn't yeah. get the kind of housing you needed? With my sister-in-law, we're like
1: sitting down and trying to get me life back on track. We've done a lot of research on this stuff and we've... Phoned nearly every house and association in Liverpool to see if they've got a disability officer and we couldn't find one. When I first got onto property pool, he put me on, I think, a thing band D or band C, which that means if I apply for a property, I'm like 300 on the list.
2: After that, he went to sleep on a couch at his brother's home. But though everyone made him feel welcome, he began to worry that he was putting a strain on the family. Since last January, he's been put up in a hotel by the council that means he can't get the help he needs to adjust to his disability.
1: While I'm in a hotel, all that stuff stops. They can give me a little bit of cane training, but they can't give me no cooking lessons. They can't give me systematic cleaning lessons. They can't give me any support around my sort of personal health um, because everything has to be around a home, a property. I feel like I'm not
2: moving forward. So when you you think about six years that you've had no stability really in terms of where you've been living, what has that meant for you in terms of looking for work, in terms of setting yourself up for life. What what impact has that had on you?
1: So I think when, you, when you're when sort of in an HMO, you, you, you'll you take any job because you need to put your, your rent on the table at the end of the month so you've got a roof over your head. So the actual sort of being able to say, retrain or go back to college or university or progress in your life, them options are taken away from me. I mean, you know, unless I can put the 500 not pounds a month on that table, then that roof was getting taken away from me. So, you know, I've worked in factories, I've done jobs that I didn't want to do, but it kept the roof over me. It, it, it's like being on that, like, the
2: hamster wheel. I'm just trying to move forward, but never actually moving anywhere. Staying in hotels in a city that gets millions of tourists every year means Ray often has to vacate his room at short notice. Once, he had to make way for visitors coming to watch the Eurovision Song Contest. At one time, I've had all my stuff packed in the back of a taxi, absolutely stressed, not knowing where to turn, and then get a phone call saying, no, you're staying for another 30 days. The other thing that strikes you about Ray is his strength of character. When he started losing his sight, he decided to quit alcohol. I'm also two years clean and sober, so
1: when I, when I went through sobriety, when I first lost my sight, I had a big decision to make whether you know, if I'm losing my sight, I can't use drink yeah. as, an, as an excuse to drink you because I'm losing my sight. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: Ellen Loudon took me to a pie shop called Home Baked. It's just next to Liverpool Football Club Stadium. The shop opened on the site of a bakery that was saved from demolition by a group of local residents. The residents set up a community land trust that's a not-for-profit organisation to deliver housing. A few years ago, they were the subject of a musical at Liverpool's Royal Court Theatre, written by Boff Wally, the former lead guitarist with the band Chumbawamba. The trust is now developing the terraced row by the bakery into a street of affordable housing.
0: Yes, they do. Pies and regeneration. It's the same thing in Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. Um and Homebaked set up a community land trust and bought those that row of houses until four or five years ago. So it was just it was just before the pandemic. All of this was desolate. And right. these houses have only just really gone up okay. in the last yeah, yeah. five so years. So what was
2: here before these houses? Terrace
0: houses, like the ones across the and road. Then... But then somebody decided that they weren't fit for purpose. Yeah. So they all came down.
2: So this was just open fields or, yeah. or scrub land? Or... Scrub
0: land for a while. Yeah. And it was really bad. It was not a nice place to be. It was... It was desolate, and it was not. It what it what happened was was that all of the shops on pro, on on the road here, yeah. everything, the community was just the infrastructure was just devastated.
2: Ellen Loudon served in parishes in West Everton and Walton. These are largely white working class neighbourhoods of inner city Liverpool.
0: Life isn't bad for a lot of people who don't yeah. have a lot of resources. Yeah, it's just that relatively. They don't have those resources to rely on, and therefore life is fragile, precarious, can be really difficult. And then you have another set of people whose lives are genuinely intolerable.
2: As a parish priest, she was invited into people's homes.
0: The standards of the way that people keep their houses, in my experience, has been, I would say, 90% of people who who I visited during my time in, in, in these parishes, the houses were kept in immaculate condition. There was a, an enormous sense of pride around the way that houses were presented. So therefore, when you go into a house where that is not the case, you know that there is a dysfunction that is, is more often than not
2: systemic. Housing has a big impact on health and on education.
0: So I think it definitely has an impact on children's ability to do their homework, to have regular warm, hot meals, to be safe and warm in their beds. Bed poverty being a closely linked challenge, I think, for children and young people. And I think that bed poverty is something that is closely linked to issues around housing as well.
2: Sorry, what's bed poverty?
0: What we found was is that quite often children did not have beds to sleep in. And that, that is utterly heartbreaking. So if you're moving a lot, what you do is you don't take your big furniture. So were they sleeping with their mum and dad? Or?
2: Or, or on a floor, or
0: just on a mattress, or, or on a camp bed.
2: The poorest people in society face the sharpest consequences. But because of rising rents, the need for social housing isn't limited to those on the lowest incomes. Adam Rasburn works for Onward Homes in Liverpool.
5: I signed up a customer a couple of weeks ago and she was a primary school teacher. Um, We've got people working in supermarkets, we've got people, taxi drivers. It it, it is just a wide range of people that work around Liverpool. Um, We have, well, I have have a tenant that's
2: a solicitor. Um, So it is a varied range of jobs that they do hold. Adam works in Kirkdale, which is a neighbourhood of terraced red-brick houses just north of Liverpool city centre, between the city's two big football clubs. Do you know what?
5: It's a very tight-knit neighbourhood. During the summer, it's quite refreshing walking along the streets of like Delamore and Roxburgh and Ruskin Street. Everybody's out in the front gardens, everybody's chatting to each other. It it is a very friendly neighbourhood.
2: So Adam, just describe where we are and yep. uh, what, what's happening here.
5: So we're in Kirkdale Community Shop, um, which is a local community shop um, for local residents of Kirkdale Walton. Around Merseyside, um, supermarkets and food companies will donate food. The community store will sell that on at a cheaper price.
2: The rising costs of food and fuel have made life a lot harder.
5: With the area of Kirkdale, there is a lot of vulnerability around obviously the cost of living at the moment, People are facing hardship. We've come across customers that can't afford furniture such as beds, which obviously is a very scary time if they can't afford to do
2: that for the children. Adam says that overcrowding has got worse with the cost of living crisis. You know, if there's seven, eight people living there that
5: is a family with children, that is classed as overcrowding. And is that a situation you're seeing more frequently now? Obviously due to the lack of social housing that
2: it's impossible to control um, overcrowding at the moment. So the severe shortage of housing has led to three things. At the sharpest end, people sleeping on the streets, huge waiting lists for social housing and people being pushed into the private sector, often into very poor conditions. Here's Matt Downey, the chief executive of Crisis, the homelessness charity. And there's there's a particular problem um, in some cities
5: where family homes are being converted into a series of bedsits and people given one room to live in um, and charged a fortune. And as I said before, local authorities have got no choice but to put people in these situations. And we're often talking about people with disabilities or people escaping domestic abuse and homelessness. The very people that should be provided security and quality housing to rebuild
2: their lives are often the ones that don't get it. Crisis and Lloyds Banking Group have joined together to call for a million more homes for social rent in the next decade. Charlie Nunn is chief executive of Lloyds Banking Group. We think it's really important to put the focus on the scale of the need for social homes, but also to make it clear that it's social
5: housing that we need. We know if we're going to build a a million new social homes... We're also going to have to build
2: more affordable homes and other homes as well to support the UK's needs. But what the UK has been falling behind on is social housing. A million in 10 years is a huge leap from current levels. Over the last 30 years, councils and housing associations built just 726,000 properties. In later episodes, we're going to look at some solutions. But before that, a bit of history. How did we get into this mess? We used to build lots of houses in the UK. So what went wrong? When Harold Macmillan was appointed housing minister by Winston Churchill in 1951, he poured energy into house building, both council and private. The Conservatives had won the 1951 election on a manifesto that described housing as the first of the social services. Work... Family life, health and education are all undermined by crowded housing, the manifesto said. Post-war, Labour had built an average of 200,000 houses a year. Macmillan had totals put up in his department like a cricket scoreboard. In his first year in charge, 240,000 houses were built. By 1953, he had hit 300,000. Around half of the homes were built by local authorities.
3: It was Anthony Eden who chose for us the goal of a property-owning democracy.
2: Fast forward three decades and there's another big shake-up to housing. It's 1980 and a newly elected Conservative government introduces a right to buy council homes at a time when there was no housing shortage. (laughs)
3: ...homes in which they live. They wanted to buy. Many of them could afford to buy. But they happened to live under the jurisdiction of a socialist council which would not sell and did not believe in the independence that comes with ownership.
2: More than two million council housing tenants took the chance to buy their homes and become homeowners for the first time. But right to buy also created problems for social housing. And more than 40 years later, we're still living with the consequences.
6: Local authorities weren't allowed at the time to reinvest in new social housing. This is David Montague,
2: who joined the housing association LNQ in the 1980s and was its chief executive for 12 years. By June 1996, Right to Buy had raised more money than any other privatisation initiative of the Thatcher era. The government wanted to reduce public sector borrowing, so local authorities had to set aside most of the money they
6: received for the sole purpose of reducing debt. And so it was—it was an irreplaceable loss. Housing associations did their best uh, and, and invested a lot of money, helped through investment, uh, private investment. But um, there was a very considerable loss of social housing through right to buy. Now, um, you, know, you can't blame the people that wanted to, to own their own home. If you're, li- if you're living in social housing and you can afford to buy it at a very substantial discount, of course you're going to do it. But there were never plans in place to re- uh, replace the housing that was lost through the right to buy. Margaret Thatcher encouraged the transfer of
2: responsibility for social housing from local authorities to housing associations.
6: Local authorities found themselves uh, no longer as landlords, no longer as owners of social housing, without the capital to invest in new social housing, without the capital to invest in existing uh, social housing. Why did she decide to shift that responsibility, David? Uh, it was for two reasons. First of all, uh, council housing is expensive if, if it's entirely uh, government funded. But it was also because she preferred the, the social entrepreneurial spirit, as she saw it, of housing associations. And so, then in 1988, uh, a new housing act enabled housing associations to borrow. And so the deal was, we could go out and 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 borrow in our own name in order to fund new affordable housing. But as we borrowed to fi- finance new affordable housing, the amount of grant that we got from government reduced. Home ownership grew during the 1980s and
2: 1990s after the right-to-buy was introduced. But the level of house building declined at a time when there was growing demand. Right-to-buy is an important part of the story, but it's not the only cause of the housing crisis. One of the factors behind the expansion of the private rented sector is the buy-to-let mortgage. That was introduced in 1996 before that landlords either needed their own capital to invest or had to borrow commercially buy-to-let mortgages really took off under the last labor government reaching a peak in 2007 just before the financial crisis the coalition government scrapped the tax relief that landlords enjoyed on mortgage interest the idea was to rein in the market and reset the balance between landlords and owner occupiers But after the crash, it also got harder for people buying their own homes to get mortgages, as the banks needed to tighten scrutiny and safety around lending. Ask most people, and they would say that Britain is a country of homeowners, and that's certainly the majority of households. But the share of people in this country who own their own homes peaked in 2005. The number of families in the private rented sector has more than doubled in the last 10 years, so there are now over a million households with dependent children living as tenants local authorities and housing associations now get to keep the receipts from right to buy
6: sales and reinvest the proceeds david montague again but the problem is you lose a home and it takes some time before you can identify the land you can build the home you can complete the home and so there is a gap but also the money that you get from a discounted sale frankly isn't enough to replace the home and so the economics just don't work the government
2: estimates that there were around three thousand people sleeping rough in england last summer the last time numbers were counted. That's the most visible and desperate end of the housing crisis. But increasingly, the shortage of really affordable homes is having an impact across the whole of society. Even for people with relatively well-paid professional jobs, the private housing sector is becoming unaffordable.
3: There was a day There was raining a lot. It was raining heavily. And there were strong winds as well. And we didn't know it at that time. We learned it later. But apparently the roof was all covered in moss and the moss uh, blocked the gutters and the pipes and all that water had to come out somewhere. And it did through one of the lamps in the hallway. So in, in just seconds we had a big puddle, <laughs> a lot of water in, uh, on the floor.
2: Next time on Making Sense of Social Housing, the crisis in our rental sector. You've been listening to Making Sense of Social Housing, supported by Lloyds Banking Group, with me, Jeevan Vasagar. It's produced by Adrian Bradley, and the executive producer is Jasper Corbett. We hope you're enjoying this series. Make sure to follow the feed so you don't miss another episode, and check out Tortoise Media's award-winning investigative series while you wait for next week's episode.